Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys, welcome back to the Equipping and Grace podcast. Uh, my name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have my friend, Jeff Johnson. Jeff, welcome back to the Equipping and Grace podcast, brother. Hey, it's great to be back on. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, man, it's great. You've written a fantastic book that we're going to talk about today. But before we go to there, uh, can you just catch us up on what's happening in your life, marriage and ministry, and what are you working on ministry project-wise? Yeah, the my life is kind of going 90 miles Primer, it's crazy. Our church is uh, growing. We're we're we got about fifty more people than we have seats in the auditorium. So we're 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 trying to keep from going from two two services, but we don't know what we're going to do there. So that's that's encouraging, but a true problem. Our seminary is growing uh, pretty rapidly. We just brought in Doctor Strand. Um, uh, he had his first actual physical day on campus uh, yesterday, so that was exciting. We have like a hundred inquiries of students that want to enroll, so it's it's kind of nuts when it comes to the seminary. Uh, so some of you know I oversee a publishing company, and we are doing two books per month, if not three books a month. So things are moving very quickly and rapidly in the publishing world. So my life is pretty busy, and they asked about my family. We have four kids. Right now, my yard needs to be mowed. And I'm thinking, how am I going to have time to do that? So I still have to do mundane things. But there's a lot of ministry going on, and I'm thankful for that. I got a new book coming out uh, next month on Thomas Aquinas. So I'm still pumping out books and trying to do what I can with the yeah, time that I have. You're doing great work. And I and I resonate with what you said about mowing because I am awful at that. My wife's like, can you please mow? And then like a week later, she's like, can you mow again? I'm like, uh, you know, it happens. So I, do I, it. I understand. I understand, brother. Well, uh, can you uh, tell us about this excellent book, uh, What Every Christian Needs to Know About Social Justice, why you wrote it, and how you hope it'll be received? Yeah, I wrote that book because I was mad. <laughs> I mean, oh, boy. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you write something because you're impassioned about it or you, you're interested in it. But this topic, I would rather have not studied. But I started, I actually started about a year and a half ago talking to Vody Bauckham on the phone. And he was telling me about his book, Fault Lines, and what he was working on. And we were ask, asking him basic questions about social justice. And uh, so he kind of put, put, put the content in my mind and it kind of got me alerted to it. And then, you know, you're watching sports. You basically, you're watching my favorite team, the Arkansas Razorbacks play basketball and on the court, they have this word equality, but I noticed that they only let the best players play the most. They're not giving, you know, equal playing time for all the basketball players. I'm like, you're a big liar. You're, you, you're wanting equality. And by that word equality, you're, they're asking, they're meaning a kind of a, a equal, uh, participation and not um, equal play. And so I'm seeing that and I'm getting frustrated and you're seeing it on ESPN, you're seeing it on social media, you're seeing it creeped into in churches. No one wants to be racist and all seeing it everywhere. It just kind of made me very frustrated. And sometimes as a pastor, um, you have to not only shepherd and teach and preach, you have to protect. And with protection, you have to take the staff and beat out the wolves from within the church. And when you're beating the wolves out, you see how dangerous they are. 
you look at their fangs, you look at their claws, and you're going, these these things, these wolves could actually do great damage to God's people. And from seeing this as a great era that's doing damage, not just to the world that I live in and our country that I love, doing great damage to the people that I am entrusted to care for, calls me to pull out the staff and out of in some sense, out of like the Lord turning over the money uh, tables and there at the temple, it led me to say, I have to do something. And out of that frustration and anger and I guess love for God's people, love for the truth, uh, it led me to buy a bunch of books. And I didn't just buy the little books. I bought kind of the original sources. I went back to Karl Marx and and had to read Karl Marx and the Frankfurt School guys and just do my research. And honestly, I would rather had researched something else. But out of frustration, I had to do my homework. And then I taught uh, a series of classes on Wednesday night to our church. And then after all that uh, research and teaching our class, uh, I took all that and and turned it into a book. Mm, yeah, yeah. This is a, it's what I like about this. You know, I've read Owen's book and I've read Vody's book and had them on. And your book, your book is is good. It's really good. Uh, it's it's a little different though. I mean, I think you go back further into like, as you're saying, into the history and, and everything. And I think that's really important for, for people to understand, but it's not also over their head because like you just said, you're writing as a pastor to to help people. So you, you did a really good job. I mean, I sat and read this book in like an hour or so. So, I mean, it's it's an easy read and it's it's a good read and it's not hard to understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of think if you need to know what something is, you need two two things you need to know. You need to know where it's going. Where does it take you? What's the end conclusion of, of the theology or the philosophy. You need to know where it's going, but you can't know where it's going. You know, if you're going to look at an arrow flying in the in the air, you got to, you know, say, where's the trajectory of that? Well, part of knowing the trajectory is you've got to go back in time and see where it was shot from. And so we're looking at social justice. It just didn't come upon us overnight. It just didn't just show up magically in the air. We have to trace it. Where does this arrow come from? Who shot it? And that's why I wanted to... to Look at the the original sources of social justice, critical theory. Where does it come from? So I had to go back to um, the the beginning guy that pulled the the arrow back, uh, the bow back, and shot it. And it goes back to Karl Marx. I'm convinced of that. And actually, it doesn't go. It actually goes back to Charles Darwin and basically to the uh, the time period of the where people begin to reject God and atheism was the ruling philosophical paradigm in which uh, these German philosophers operated out of. And so it goes back to that. And I wanted to show its atheistic roots so that we can see that it doesn't lead to a true justice that comes from God. It leads away from God and away from uh, anything that's right and true. Yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned Karl Marx. Why did Charles Spurgeon, you know, the prince of preachers, why did he oppose Karl Marx? Yeah, because it was creeping into the, um, to England at the time. I mean, Karl Marx was a, a, a dominant figure, and there's something attractive to his philosophy. It, it seems to come about, socialism seems to bring about some type of equality or justice, at least uh, fairness. Um, every parent has three kids or four kids. There's some sense they want them to all be equally winners. You know, you'd like to see them all get a participation trophy and no none of them to get their feelings hurt and everybody to kind of come out uh, at the same, same pace. But it's just not true. I mean, some of your kids are going to be... Uh, 
more advanced in, in, in their schools. They're going to be smarter. They can uh, overcome difficulties easier. Some of them are going to be more athletic. You can't necessarily uh, say, hey, here's a, here's that more athletic child. He you have to hold him back so that he's not too advanced than your less athletic children. Really, that that's leads to some form of injustice. The thing about biblical justice is it's like, a, let's, let's have all your children play by the same rules. And the ones that uh, are better, they should actually be able to, although they're playing by the same rules, they should be able to have more production. And so there's something about socialism at first glance that's attractive to to all of us. And I think Charles Spurgeon saw that. He understood that it undermined biblical justice or true justice. And so he warned his people about it. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, can you explain why at the heart of social justice or rebellion against God's authority? Yeah, that's a very big question. And I actually believe that that's the answer to that is the heart of the problem. And it's not an easy one to see at first glance that social justice or critical theory, or critical race theory, uh, woke uh, ideology, all these things at the heart of it is an anti-God disposition. Um, it's strange to think that socialism is not necessarily principally for the group. It seems like that would be the case. That socialism is for the for the overall group. Capitalism, if you would, is for the individual. Uh, the group is better than the individual, so we should prefer socialism above capitalism. Capitalism is uh, promotes selfishness, and socialism promotes unselfishness. That seems on the surface to be true, but it's actually the opposite when you look at the roots of it and where it takes us. Uh, socialism began with the the beginning presupposition of socialism is there's no God. And Karl Marx says if there's no God, uh, then basically somebody else has to step in and bring forth justice. Someone has to be uh, the mechanism that determines what justice is. And so it's denying that God is the one who determines justice, and right and wrong. And so Karl Marx had a new definition a redefining of justice with there's no God in his place. And, and it leads to the state taking the place of God and with a new form of justice. And ultimately, critical theory comes out of that. And it made one little slight change to Karl Marx's view of Marxism. Classical Marxism turned into social Marxism with one simple change. Karl Marx still believed in science mm. and but critical theory says science is based upon absolutes, some truths, and truth doesn't care about our feelings. And therefore, science, such as there's a male, there's a female, that's binding on me. And it doesn't matter if I like it or not. Science is telling me certain things that are true. And social Marxism was a rebellion against all form of authority authority, authority or truth. And truth by its very nature is authoritative. Uh, I have to submit to it like mathematics. I can say I don't like mathematics, but and I can say I don't, I'm not going to go by those laws. But eventually my checkbook is going to show that I can't function without laws. Mm. Well, critical theory is basically saying uh, wherever you see authority, wherever you see absolute truth, it's a reflection of the de- deity or divine authority. We know there's not a divine authority. Therefore, to get rid of God and the fingerprints of God, that's stamped on all of creation. We have to get rid of authority. We got to get rid of absolutes. We got to get rid of anything that bonds me. And therefore, critical theory is an attack upon language. And it says language is not from God. It, language is a social construct uh, derived from those who are in power to keep power. And it's meant to 
to be authoritative and oppressive. And so really what they do in the end, they say authority is inherently oppressive and to get out of oppression of racism, we got to get rid of all authority wherever it's located. If that's the father over the uh, the children, if that's a husband over the wife, if that's language over the individual, we have to deconstruct authority uh, and wherever we find it, so that the individual can be free to live and do and think and behave any way he wants to. And so ultimately, critical theory is not going to be happy until there's no authority at all and everybody gets to do what's right in their own eyes. Mm. Wasn't it so Karl Marx? Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't it Karl Marx who said that religion is the opium of the opiate of the people, basically? Yeah, exactly. He said that. Yeah. That's right. I mean, so then then I mean it shouldn't shock anybody then what you just said, because I mean, we know that like Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that eternity is set on our hearts. And uh, Blaise Pascal said that, you know, uh, we have a God-shaped hole in our hearts. So, I mean, we're always going to seek for something else other than God if we reject God. I mean, that's Romans 1 and many other texts, too. So, I mean, it's just... Yeah, and the irony of it all is that Christianity allows for freedom of religion, that it's not imposed. Christianity is not forced by the sword upon it's it's adherence. You uh, freely believe. Of course, we know it's by grace that you believe, but you're you're not forced. And in fact, you can't force it upon individuals. Uh, that's Christianity. So uh, Christianity allows for other religions to operate within the world. All other religions don't have that bifurcation. It doesn't allow for that. Socialism is really a anti-religion. It's a anti-God religion, but it's, it's still a religion. It's still a a, a belief system that it's and it doesn't allow for people to opt out of it. Socialism is going to be mandated on you, and therefore it doesn't allow you to go. Hey, uh, I don't like this. No, it's it's a it's a bridging their anti-religion or anti-God philosophy and mixing it with society, and then it has to be enforced for there to be their belief of justice, uh, social justice. It has to be the kind of the new rule. The new rule. And of course, as we know, their view of justice is inverted to true justice. Yes. It undermines true justice. And so it leads to anarchy. Yeah, it, I think it for, function. yeah, I think for a lot of pastors, maybe even ministry leaders, they might want to know, like, you know, we're seeing divisions happen on this issue. Like, are there ever situations in which you can see social justice in the local church rising to the level of church discipline? What, what are your thoughts on that, brother? Yeah, I, I believe so. I mean, obviously, you would want to be very patient with uh, Christians that are not for sure, they're adopting some of the tenets of social justice and not aware of it. But if someone came into your church claiming to be a Christian, but held to Buddhist principles, and Buddhism was really the paradigm in which this member of your church operated, would you not have to address this? And if he's not repentant, excommunicate the person. Uh, if someone brought Islam into the church, and that was the ruling principles in which he lived his life, or she lived his life, you'd have to address this. Well, that's the thing about social justice. It's not just a social theory. It's a anti-Christian worldview. It's an anti-God philosophical position. It's incongruent with Christianity. It's not just some uh, view of, um, it's, it's not just some benign issue that doesn't relate to Christianity. It actually can't function with Christianity. So if someone came in that and they understood uh, where it came from and understand where it leads. And they were 
hardcore about that teaching that you'd have to address it. If they were unrepentant, you would have to carry forth some form of church discipline. Yeah. Of course, you would be patient. I mean, there's a lot of Christians that are buying into this and they're they're not for sure uh, that it's necessarily anti-Christian and they're they're naive about yeah so we want to take we'd want to take first a discipleship approach with them and walk alongside them and explain hey this is what this is and if you know then they don't uh understand i mean if they don't understand we're still going to be patient with them but if they're just like okay well you know i'm rejecting what you're saying then we're going to probably move into this area that that's kind of what you're saying if they understand this is a a different form of justice but they don't they like that justice better than what the bible describes justice. then there there's some real issues and it could bring a lot of damage not just to themselves but to other members of the church and as as a pastor your primary responsibility is to protect your flock yes absolutely how should the church respond to the social justice movement well it needs to be educated first i mean um, truth is that which exposes errors light throws out the darkness and we don't have like a mechanism where we pick up swords and go fight people or our only method of, of addressing this is by getting to the truth of it so one, you need to know the error, but more importantly, you need to know the truth. And a lot of reason this comes into the church is because the church doesn't understand the Bible. It doesn't understand that, hey, enough about law gospel distinction and what the law is, that when you get this counterfeit law, they're not able to go, oh, that's not what the Bible says. They're not able to make that discernment because they're not fully convinced about what the Bible says about the truth. And so truth is the method in which we combat this in the church. And so we have to educate ourselves and be clear and teach our people. Um, Like right now, half of my church, 90% of my church probably knows little to nothing about Buddhism, but we're not dealing with that right here in Arkansas. But if I was in, in Utah, I think we probably need to be educated about Mormons. We'd be facing our friends, our family would be Mormons. We need to know about that. So I think it's very important that churches across the states educate themselves to know what social justice is because it's in their families, it's in the social media, it's in the sports, it's in news, it's everywhere. And it's a it's a false religion that's anti-Christianity. And so it's it's important that pastors, churches take this seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's in our face. Like some people even think, well, I, I'm not going to watch the NFL. And it's like, well, I, I like the NFL. I, I can, you know, fast forward, record it and fast forward through the parts that I don't like, you know, like the flag right. thing that that really bothers me. My father was a retired lieutenant colonel and I come from, you know, a military family and disrespecting the flag is that's a no-go for me um i don't i don't know about our listeners but for me growing up the way i did and uh around the military and having friends in the military that's that's a no-go you know and and seeing the the things on tv i'm like can you just like again you know free speech and everything in our face it's like it just makes me wonder like how do we how do we um how do you talk to somebody about that without you know I mean, it is a sensitive subject, but how do we how do we help those who are so entrenched in that viewpoint? Yeah, I mean, it's I have a family member that has once just wants to guard against racism. We all want to guard against racism. We all want to admit that, hey, America has some parts of its history that's not commendable. I mean, we don't have to deny the fact that America has some things, stains upon our history. We also have some things we can be proud of. Uh, we can be thankful that we have religious freedom and independence and uh, and freedom of conscience. Um, and so I think the, the thing is, is just being patient 
with our family members or friends and try to communicate this to them in a loving way. Sometimes I like what Owen does in his book. He has this whole section where he says, this is what I'm not talking about. Because in their minds, it's 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 like if you're not with them, you're a racist. And you've got to clarify that, that, that racism is evil. God hates it and we should hate it. And God shows no partiality. But again, that showing no partiality is biblical justice. And that's what we should aim for. So when you uh, play by the rules, you don't uh, show partiality to the people who are not as good. You don't show partiality to those who are better. You just play by the rules, fairness, and let the best team win. Let the best players come to the top. Uh, that's not showing partiality. But if you end up uh, uh, seeking to uh, artificially take power or wealth away from the rich because they're rich, that's showing partiality. And if you're giving more resources to the poor or the underprivileged, that's showing partiality. No, play by the rules, play fair. And um, that's what we're called to do. That's not racism. Racism is when you show partiality and actually social justice leads to uh, partiality. Yes. That's well said. Well said. You know, how important is it that we understand how language works and how the use of language is at the heart of social justice? I know you talk about, but you don't frame it that way exactly. I'm taking what you said and framing it as a question. Yeah. So take take that, you know, how you will. I'm not trying to misrepresent you, but you know, no, no, that's good because at the heart of critical theory, which is the heart of, uh, of social justice, think of uh, classical Marxism is the beginning of it. Critical theory is the transition of it. It's the it's uh, between where we're at now and then you got social justice, the fruit of it. So critical theory is based upon language has no absolute meaning. There's no truth. There's no God who gives us a divine dictionary. Therefore, all language is socially construct. It's progressive. It's always changing. There's no real meaning. So they're not bound. They're not bound to any set meaning. And when we say this is what justice is, this is what partiality is, this is what fairness is, we're saying something that has some teeth to it, has some, it's absolute, it's it's real. It doesn't matter if you like it or not. And we're going to be held accountable to God if we do or do not do what we know to be true. Well, critical theory says, no, that that's an oppressive uh, mechanism to keep people uh, bound. I mean, it, it makes people who have homosexuality tendencies to feel oppressed. You're telling me I can't behave this way. You're telling me I need to, to, uh, to like someone of the opposite sex. That's oppressive. And who are you to tell me that? Well, well I'm not the one telling you that. There's, there's absolute truth. And so language works because there's a God. There, there's a nature, there's a part of language that is progressive. For instance, um, terms change meaning over time. And so we, we acknowledge that there is an element of, of, of language being fluid and socially constructed. We admit that. But behind it all, there is some truth in which language is attached to that is not changing, such as there is a sun in the sky. Every language understands there's a sun. And that's not a social construction. That may be the word sun and the different words used for that that uh, big ball of flames in the air they made different words and that word can change. That's not what's important. The fact that is there's a reality there, there's a sun in the sky and every human who's ever lived knows about that sun. That's an absolute truth. So the fact that there's absolute truth, there is something for language to be tagged to, which makes language uh, useful. Once there's not absolute truth, then language ceases to be useful at all. It's all relative. And then the interpreter gets to determine the meaning, not the author. 
And that turns into complete relativism and it breaks down society as a whole. You can't live on relativism. Only for as long as there's a little bit of capital from uh, from uh, absolute truth. Once that capital is used up, kind of like Cuba, it can last for a few years based upon the capital built by capitalism. But once it's used up, then it goes into complete chaos. So socialism, social justice fails once it depletes its resources that were gained by God. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of what you're talking about with the, the Oxford Dictionary uh, came out with the word post-truth. It's like, you know, it's like we're beyond the idea of just, okay, well, the truth is relative to me. It basically has no meaning. So yeah. how do it's we... Just how do, Oxford Dictionary in the trash. It's not useful anymore. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, brother, you know, this is a this is an important question, I think, because um, we need to understand, you know, how the biblical gospel um, exposes uh, the false gospel of social justice. So how does the biblical gospel counter the counterfeit gospel of social justice? Because the, the gospel is built off the fulfillment of the law. Now, we obviously can't keep the law and the gospel is Jesus Christ keeping that law for us. But the gospel is not anti-law. It's actually the fulfillment of the law. And so here we have a solution to true justice in mercy. And that gives us a way out of racism. It provides forgiveness. We've all have discriminated against someone. I wouldn't think that, hey, I've been racist in my life, but hey, I've shown discrimination. In fact, I have shown preference to people, sometimes in my own children. I've preferred one child above the other, not meaningly, but what do I do as a parent? Am I stuck in my sins for the rest of my life? No, I have a, a message of hope, of forgiveness, and a message of reconciliation. And it's only when I can be reconciled to God, who defines justice according to his own nature. Once I'm forgiven with God, it gives me the ability, because of great love that he's given to me, to be able to forgive those who have offended me, and then ask for repentance to those who I've offended. And through Christ's death, there is a mechanism for others to forgive me and me to forgive others, which brings true reconciliation in a world full of racism and hostility and injustices and sin. And so the gospel is the solution, but it doesn't throw the law out. Uh, it actually satisfies the law, fulfills the law through Jesus's death, taking the wrath of God uh, on our behalf and keeping the law for us. So it's a beautiful picture, and it's the answer to the world's problems. And thus, we need to uh, preach the law and not social justice, which really never does bring forgiveness, reconciliation. Yes. Well said, brother. Where can people go to find out more about you online, either on social media or otherwise? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I have a love-hate relationship with social media, but I am on Twitter, 1689 Jeffrey. Um, You can um, find more about me. I'd love to plug freegracepress.com. You can yeah. find the book, What Christian Can Need to Know About Social Justice, on that site. Uh, I, I love when people buy directly from Free Grace Press rather than Amazon. Uh, it uh, makes sure that we're better supported. Amazon wants to take a lot of their cut. Um, so, freegracepress.com uh, yeah. is a good place to go. Wonderful, wonderful. You know, brother, there's a lot that we could talk about about this topic as we wrap up. Do you want to give our listeners a few takeaways? Yeah. 
the main takeaway is uh, buy the truth and do not sell it. Love the truth. Mm. There's going to be one heresy or problem after another, but the truth never changes. So the best thing we can do is give ourselves to study the scriptures, to know the truth, uh, never be satisfied with the level of knowledge that we have. There's always more that we can learn. There's always more that we can get um, understanding upon. It's 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 God's prerogative to reveal truth to us. And if he's revealed it to us, it should be our heart's desire to know it. And if we know the truth, that will be our best remedy against lies, errors. Mm. Well said, brother. Well, uh, I've enjoyed having you on today, guys. Uh, we've been talking today with Jeff Johnson, author of What Every Christian Needs to Know About Social Justice. I, I strongly encourage you to pick this this book up with Owens and, and Vodis, and uh, you'll, you'll get equipped for sure on all these topics. And uh, so, Jeff, thank you so much for your time. We're continuing to pray for your work at Free Grace Press, the church, and the seminary, and thankful for all you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.